You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. How many threads are at the intersection of comedy that binds us? Out of the darkness into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode is Michael Seth Starr, the author of Don Rickles' The Merchant of Venom. Michael's New York Post television editor and a celebrity biographer. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on. So this was a two-minute conversation, and if you don't like going beyond that, that's free. Feel free to uh, go that way. But the big question I always have is why? Why do writers pick certain subjects? In your case, I love the book, but why did you pick Don Rickles to write about? Well, you know, I, I've written other books, Larry, and, and what publishers usually are looking for when, when they buy a project is a subject as far as biographies that nobody has written about yet. And nobody had written about Don. It's only by the time I was starting to write, it had only been about three and a half years after his passing. So it was still kind of early, but I've, I'd always been a big fan of his. And I have a sort of a wish list of subjects. And he was on that list that I sent to my editor. And we decided that that would be a, he was also a big Don Rickles fan. And we thought, you know, Don Rickles. I mean, it's like you just say the name and you usually get a smile from people or, yeah, I love them. You know, occasionally you get the, eh, I wasn't a big fan. But um, he was was such a, a legend and kind of in my wheelhouse of performers from that era of uh, movies and television and such an interesting career. And I knew there was a lot uh, that people did not know about Don other than his appearances on The Tonight Show um, or the Dean Martin roast, which is what a lot of people knew him from. And it just was a chance to explore his life in depth, tell some funny stories, get some lines in there from Don himself. Right. And uh, hopefully keep people entertained and enlightened as to what drove his engine. So in terms of this book, how many people did you speak to? And was everybody willing to talk about Don Rickles and all his permutations? Because one of the earliest surprises of all, he grew up in Queens, that yes, he was a very shy, aloof kid, which would surprise a lot of people because once he got on stage, you got full-blown Rickles for better or worse. Right. I mean, his he, he had a... a for lack of a better word, an overbearing mother who loved him very much and dedicated a lot of her life to Don's career. But yes, he was, a, he, he was, you know, a shy, on the shy side, retiring kid who had a typical childhood in Queens and went to high school and, um, you know, played some sports, enlisted in the, in the U.S. Navy where he, where he was during World War II for two and a half years. But, um, I found most people that I contacted were, were more than happy to talk about Don. And that's not always the case when you do books like these. And I think a lot of it depends on the subject that you're writing about uh, and, and, and how much people, you know, you might have a lot as the author, you might have a lot of respect for this person right. and like their work, but you discover or, you know, ahead of time that, you know, maybe there are more people out there who really don't, for instance, uh, my previous book before the Don Rickles book was um, a biography of William Shatner, who's, you know, a polarizing figure. To, know, say, not to only, say the least. To say yeah, the least. Right. Not only to fans of Star Trek, but 
in entertainment and 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 I, and I did interview people some who who even though they talked about him were not so kind and most of them were but um so I was lucky in the sense that most of the people that I reached out to for Don Rickles were were more than happy to to talk about him and share their memories of him and uh, behind the scenes and and on television and um so in that sense yes it was it worked out well and it's it's always a bonus for an author to fill in those blanks with quotes from people who actually knew your subject and worked with your subject right. and were friends with your subject. The one person that I reached out to who I've interviewed before, by the way, for the New York post and for other books and, and declined was Bob Newhart, not because he didn't want to talk to me, but you know, Bob was one of Don's probably Don's best friend in, in real life and in show business. But he was work. He told me he was working on a project with Don's daughter, Mindy. I think they were trying to get a documentary going about yeah, Don. Right. So he didn't want to. He didn't want to take away from that to talk to me, and I understood that. And I and I've interviewed Bob Newhart before, and he's a really nice guy. And I, it, it, that was fine. Uh, it would have been great. To, and I, and there were some quotes from him in the book, not not from an interview with me, but from other sources. Um, would have been nice to get his to get some fresh quotes. But I, I think I think. You can get people who read the book will will get the sense that Bob and Don were, were terrific friends and really did love each other very much. I'm going to amplify on that, and I'll tell you why. Last night, I watched a documentary, The Rickles Project. All over the documentary is the two families, the Newhart yes. family and the Rickles family, the Great Wall of China. So they had, as you say, a very close relationship. And watching that documentary was so illuminating. I was telling Chris earlier, who right now is man behind the scenes with this podcast, that mm. watching the, the documentary gives a lot more depth to what you write about in the book because it puts a face and a voice behind a lot of the characters that you write about. So watching, reading your book, watching the documentary was very illuminating for me. Yeah, and, 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 and actually it's a good point, Larry. It's almost like a um, people who – might not have seen a documentary and can either watch the documentary first, read the book or read the book first, watch the documentary. And I think both in, in essence will, will, will fill out a complete picture of Don and um, people who read the book will find out that that documentary was produced by Don's son, Larry, who yes. uh, sadly passed away several years later from um, uh, a blood disease uh, or pneumonia, I believe it was um, at the age of 41. So it's sort of, it adds sort of a sad, uh, addendum to that. My guest is Michael Seth Starr. His book is called Don Rickles, The Merchant of Venom. So I don't know if you are a fan of Woody Allen. He's controversial to, to this day. I love Broadway Danny Rose, and I'll tell you why. The scene with all the comedians, they were real comedians. Sandy Barron was there eating and talking, sharing stories. Is right. The one takeaway that I have, the few times I've interviewed some comedians, is they're very, very tribal. They're very comfortable with others like them. Was that true of Rickles? I think so. And 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 you'll people who read the book will will see that the majority of his quote unquote show business friends were comedians, in, including Bob Newhart. Um, and comedians are, you know, it's funny because it can work two ways. Comedians are first of all, they're very competitive with each other, right? So and you you read stories all the time of this one stole my act, this one stole jokes to me. Don wasn't wasn't ever really like that. Never really accused anybody. I mean, um, 
uh, Jack Leonard, Jackie Leonard, they right. call him Fat yes. Jack Leonard in the book was, was very territorial. And, and he, he did, he did often say that he felt Don stole parts of his act, but I think Don's act was very different than Fat Jack's. Um, Fat Jack Leonard was, he was an insult comic, a little more intellectual, I think, than, than, than Don's humor. Don just went straight to the bone. Fat Jack, and maybe you had to think about it a little bit for, for a second, but and that's what set them apart. But yes, Don, most of Don's friends in show business were comedians. And then later, um, when he, when he made the movies like, um, the casino with De Niro and Scorsese, he became friendly with them. Right. Um, so I think a lot of times it depends on who the, the arc of your career is taking, who you're working with at, at certain times. And Don was in the television business for a long time. So he had a lot of friends behind the scenes that other people might not know about, but also in front of the in people who people would know. And he, and, and everybody, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, everybody had a lot of respect for him, even his fellow comedians, which is not always the case. Um, so I think he was able to survive and show business as long as he did by having those friendships and recognizing his quote unquote limitations. I don't mean in his humor. I just mean how far to go with somebody or, or what to say, what not to say, even for Don Rickles. Right. So, so let's take a step backwards. We, we kind of glossed over his upbringing because I gave you the two minute question and we're still here. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. He studied acting. A lot of people don't know that. They see what became, the man became Mr. Warmth. You call him the merchant mm -hmm. of Venom. Okay. That he had a background early on in acting. Now, I don't know how far he took it, but he in his class were a lot of famous actors or would be later on very famous actors. Would that surprise a lot of people that his first choice was to be an actor, not a comedian? I think so. And, and a dramatic actor, no less. Yes, very uh, much so. With, which 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 was which which his was his childhood dream actually even when he got out of the navy even though he he was making his shipmates laugh in the navy he, he wanted to pursue a career in dramatic I I was surprised I mean I sort of knew about it vaguely but he he did attend the the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in in New York City as as you mentioned he went through the two year course there he graduated uh, Grace Kelly was a classmate Conrad Bain. Um, Jason Robards Jr., Don Murray, who later went on mm -hmm. to star in Bus Stop with Marilyn Monroe and, and remain one of Don's lifelong friends, by the way. Um, so, yes, it's it's surprising. And even when Don started his his nightclub career, it really wasn't he, – he didn't start out as an insult comic. He really started out sort of as like a performance artist. Right. You know, telling stories, not not jokes, stories. And he had something called The Man with the Glass Head where he would he would go he would become a man who had a imaginary glass like fishbowl like divers wear on is, his head. Is that the Peter Lorre connection? Yes, yes, and and you know he would ask you know and, and he would say you know what is this man thinking? And it was very like artsy, cutting hedge and you know it didn't go over well because it wasn't a success for him. But he uh, he was working at a club in in D.C. at that time, a strip club, and doing his act and he started to get heckled by some of the people there. It was, it was by the, the, the shipyard in, in Washington. And there were some, you know, some Navy guys in there, even though Don was in the Navy, but it was a tough crowd. And he started, he started making fun of them and, and, and they liked it. And, and he was like, wow, I have this talent. I, I never really knew I had, I mean, you know, he would do impersonations and that sort of thing, but never really the, the confrontational, you know, you know, is that your wife or is that a moose? You know, that, that, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Oh, and, and he discovered he had a knack for it. 
And I, I think in a very smart way, started to build his act around that and started to make a name. It took him a long time. It was, he was not an overnight success, but he did slowly build the act up slowly. You know, he, he, he toured a lot of the country. A lot of times his mother, Etta was with him as his road manager, which you think back a little awkward, but, you know, but she, she wanted him to be a success. And he started to work his way up into bigger and bigger clubs. And eventually um, Murray Franklin's in Miami beach where he met the famous, the famous meeting with Frank Sinatra and then the Slate brothers club in LA, which really put him over the top. Um, then on to Vegas and the rest, as they say, is history. You know, he just, he never stopped working after that. He, he was, he probably worked in his prime close to 300 days a year, which I think he regretted a little later in his life because right. he, didn't have time to spend as much time with his family that he would have liked to, but. So I, know, re- was- I, I remember Groucho Marx. You bet your life. You said the word, <laughs> the duck would come down. You right. said the magic word and I'll tell you why. Sinatra. I had the honor multiple times over the years to spend some time and interview Pete Hamill, the great Pete Hamill. Involved with your newspaper, New York Times, yes. uh, New, uh, and uh, another the other newspaper, New York, major newspapers in New York, the Daily News. I blanked on right. that for a second, and we talked about this in an interview. Pete wrote the book Why Sinatra Matters and tells great stories. of Sinatra coming up at two o'clock in the morning. Pete, I don't care what you're doing. Come out. You're hanging out with me, and you didn't say no to Frank Sinatra. Right. So, in terms of Don Rickles, why did Sinatra matter so much? Well, d- d- he he really he really was a huge boost to Don's career. I mean, I don't I think without Frank Sinatra's patronage in the early days, I think Don would have been successful. I'm not sure he would have been as successful, especially the way that they the two of them met. I mean, um, Don, as I mentioned before, was working at Murray Franklin's, which was a small club in Miami Beach. I mean, people knew about it, but it wasn't like the Copacabana in New York or right, or right. That, on, that, on that level, but it was a very comfortable small club. And Don, and again, we mentioned Don's mother, Etta. Etta was friendly with Dolly Sinatra, Frank's mother. Yep. And she knew her down in Miami Beach, where she was living at the time. And she really implored her to get to get Frank to come see what she called him, Sonny Boy. You know, come see my Sonny Boy. He's my, and so she did. And and Don did, didn't know. The story goes, Don was not aware of this, and. Don was doing his act in Murray Franklin's. He was on stage and Sinatra walks in, the hush falls over the crowd. Everybody turns around to look and Don goes, uh, go ahead, Frank, make yourself at home. Hit somebody. You know, I saw your last movie. The Cannon was a better actor than you are. You know, people were stunned. Nobody talked to Sinatra like that. Right. But, you know, and everybody and Frank laughed. So everybody, ah, everybody else laughed and everybody could, you know, the, the mood was broken. And they became lifelong friends from there. They toured later uh, later in their careers together. And Don was one of the, I think maybe one of the only people who could publicly, quote unquote, ridicule, ridicule Frank Sinatra. You saw a lot of that when they were together on The Tonight Show. Joey Bishop early on in his Rat Pack days could get away with it, but not at that level. Right. And then he was, you know, he was kicked out of the Rat Pack and that was the end, that was the end of his relationship with, with Frank. But um, even if, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. couldn't get away with it, he he did a famous interview where he, in the fifties where he criticized Sinatra and he was on the outs for a while, but Don could. And for whatever reason, it tickled Frank Sinatra's funny bone and he didn't mind. 
Let's reset. My guest is Michael Seth Starr. The book is called Don Rickles, The Merchant of Venom. I know how important for reading the book and watching the documentary, what his mother Etta meant to him. I don't know if I can describe him as a mama's boy, but that's probably very true. Even at the end, long after she passed, he always acknowledged her. He did. At the end of his act, he'd always say, you know, I love you, mom. Right. And even when he when he married Barbara, I think it was 1966, 65, 66, they moved to an apartment in L.A. And his mother, his mother moved right. uh, like two doors down. So here, here's one of the biggest surprises of all. Not considered a handsome man. Like, and you can take issue with that. He was the quintessential ladies' man to finally meeting Barbara, and she resisted him for a time. And finally, I think he married at the age of 39. But that surprised a lot of people. How many women were in his life time and time and time and time again? I, I think so. You're right. I mean, you know, you think Don Rickles, you don't think ladies' man. Um, but he did, you know, he was on the road a lot, and, and he – he dated uh, and some 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 pretty famous people. K. Star. Uh, he dated Sandra Burns, who was George and Gracie's daughter. Right. Um, uh, there's a string of women, you know, not not and, and I when I when I say string of women, I don't mean like in a in a in a tabloidy kind of way. He dated a lot, and um, yeah, he, he was he was on the road. He was lonely, and he struck up, you know, the, and he had relationships with these women. And um, I think there's a story in the book about Joe Scandori's club, the uh, the, the Elegante in Brooklyn, you know, Don Scandori's car was parked in the back. Don might go out with occasionally with one of the women there and, you know, do whatever they were going to do. But um, yes, he did date a lot. And he, he realized as he was closing in on his forties that he wanted to settle down. And he met uh, Barbara Sklar through his agent, Jack, Jack Gallardi in, in, in LA. She was Jack's secretary. And he wooed her for a while and she was having none of it. <laughs> it's like, you know, right. he would try all his lines on it. She was like, get away. You know, I'm not interested. But she really was interested. And they they, they did end up um, dating and then marrying. And they had a really, really happy marriage for 50 plus years. So I mentioned Groucho Marx. I watched on American Masters on PBS the documentary about Groucho Marx and Dick Cavett. Dick yes, Cavett. In, Dick Cavett. I wrote about, I wrote about him. It's in, it's in tomorrow's paper. All right. Dick Cavett. <laughs> is a comedic genius. He is. He's very, very, very smart. So can I make the thread between Groucho Marx and Don Rickles? Is there a line that runs through from Groucho Marx into Don Rickles? Honestly, Larry, I, I've never really thought of that connection. Um, Don Groucho Marx actually was not a fan of Don's. If memory serves in the book, there's a few quotes from him. When when Don started hitting it big, Groucho right. was, was um, criticized him. Didn't think it was you know that he was funny or there was any humor in his insults. So I guess you can draw that line. Um, I interviewed Dick Cavett for for that what for the story for the documentary you're referring to. It's online and it'll run in tomorrow's post. Right. Um, and I think he was almost as surprised as anyone else that, that Groucho was really was attracted to him, but. It, Dick was a guy from the Midwest. Groucho was from New York, but they did share a, a similar worldview and, and sensibility. And I don't think I don't think Don's sensibilities. He might have been a huge fan of the Marx Brothers, for all I know. But I don't think his comic sensibilities were, or his act on stage was in line with what Groucho did. Even though Groucho, you know, in his movies and stuff, and and you you mentioned you bet your life, and he would right. quote he would make fun of the contestants, but it was in a different way than Don would have. 
Um, so I don't know. I don't, I don't honestly don't really see much of a comedic connection other than the fact that Groucho early on was not a big fan of Don Rickles. All right. So that, that's that's the connection I saw, the fact that they would speak their minds, they'd go after certain people in a comedic way. Rickles took it slightly differently. Let me take the connection one step further. People are not going to like this. Honestly, not going to like this. Okay. I see the connection to Donald Trump because Donald Trump would get out there in front of a large audience and insult people. And I have never forgiven him based on my background and former life as a special ed teacher in a school district on Long Island. We insulted the disabled New York Times reporter. Yes, on the and, campaign. And Rickles, in a sense, in the audience was set up. People watch the documentary and read the book. Certain people were put in front for Rickles to insult. But he made fun of people's personal appearances. And he did. And, and Donald Trump, in many sense, in a much more dramatic and tragic way, because people in those, in those campaign rallies laughed and clapped and laughed and clapped and to, to this day, my reaction, I, I'm still very angry about this, but Rickles did it in a different time, in a different place, but Donald Trump did it in a very effective way, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, when you're, we're talking about, you know, Rickles in, in particular, I mean, yeah, you, you're right. He, he, he came of age in, in, a, in an era and in, in decades where that that form of, "Quote unquote insult humor was accepted. Was it right? Debatable. Probably he probably did. Cry. He, you know, in looking back in retrospect, right, right. even you know, I I can't think of any time off the top of my head where he made fun of a disabled person. He might have. I don't know, but he did make fun of people's personal appearances, um, and he made fun of obviously all ethnic races, including Jewish people. He was Jewish, we know, and." Yeah. Um, he made fun of blacks and Hispanics and, and, you know, playing off the stereotypes. And, and, you know, a lot of people have asked me this um, when the book came out, do I think Don could get away with that today? And no, he couldn't. There's no way in heck <laughs> that he would last five minutes on stage um, as a comedian with those sorts of insults. The time that he was doing it, it was acceptable and people enjoyed it for reasons of their own. And he was really popular. We, you know, it's, there's no doubting that. Um, he did later in his career, I think it was 2012, um, really he crossed that line where, when he was, uh, it was at a, an American Film Institute um, tribute to Shirley MacLaine. I saw Don that. I saw that clip. I saw yeah, it. That yeah. was there. And, and he, he, I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember that, but he he said, you know, uh, President Obama's not here because, you know, I, I was going to invite Obama over, but he didn't bring his mop, you know, and it, mm -hmm. he, he crossed the line in liberal Hollywood. There was a big gasp. But 30 seconds later, there's quotes of people who were there. He had them back in the palm of his hand. I mean, people he knew he crossed. And he never did that again, by the way. Um, he didn't apologize. But when they aired it, when they aired that tribute on television, they did cut, they did edit that part out. Um, so he had, in, in one way, he had balls to do it in such a, in, in that, in that's knowing the, maybe he didn't take the temperature of the room properly, or maybe he did. He just wanted to shock people. I don't know. It was, you know, 11, 12 years ago and he was nearing the end of his career, but um, he knew uh, just back to Sinatra for a second. 
he knew never to he knew sort of the line he could go up to with Sinatra making fun of his Italian heritage. You know, right. I talked about, right. you know, Mango Manganzo, the bomb, you know, in Jersey City. He was all over the he blew up and he was all over the street. Sinatra enjoyed that. What Don didn't do is cross the line into Sinatra's real personal life. Um Somebody asked him once, it was when, when Frank Sinatra was going through his divorce from Mia Farrow, uh, a reporter asked on why he, you know, never mentioned that in his act. And he's like, you know, come on. I, he said, there was, I, Frank's my friend and there were certain lines that I'm just not going to cross. And he also knew what side of his bread was buttered on, right? I mean, if he lost Sinatra's support and friendship, it, it might have put a, a dent in, in his career and his prospects going elsewhere, you know, performing elsewhere. So if you don't mind, I want to follow up on Crossing Lines today in 2022 and beyond. And even prior to that, I'm thinking of two people who are comedians, Michael Richards from Seinfeld and Dave Chappelle. Mm -hmm. I love Dave Chappelle. I love him. He's very smart. And I watched when he hosted SNL and he there was a lot of reaction pro and confident. The con reaction is what he said about Jews in Hollywood. How far can you push that line, that boundary? You said Rickles kind of knew where to stop and not cross. And I call it the red line or even the elephant in the room. Michael Richards hmm. got in trouble. Yes. Other comedians got in trouble. Dave Chappelle is getting away with that. But still, people are questioning not his right to say what he says, but how he says it. How, how, where do you fall with that in terms of what's going on today with people who are, in a sense, are influencers? Yeah, um, I tend to stay away from from talking anything, discussing anything political. Just it's a personal thing. But there, there I think with Dave Chappelle, there's he has a veneer of um, being an intellectual comic. Yes, and I think that um, and 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 funny when he's not saying the sorts of things that you just referenced. And I think that allows him a little bit more wiggle room than just being a mean. Michael Richards was, I think, it was caught in a comedy club, right? Yes, and he was, was angry and calling somebody the N word. That's that's what that was right. That was unacceptable. You can apologize all you want, but you know, I don't think he's ever recovered from that, honestly. Um, and I think it remains to be seen where Dave Chappelle's career leads him. I mean, he's he's always been controversial. Um, he signed a huge deal with Comedy Central when his show hit it big and then just walked away from that. Um, it was millions of dollars, went away for a while and then resurfaced. Um, I think it. I, I think the public at large is less tolerant um, nowadays of that kind of uh, political, topical, mean humor, humor, you know, quote unquote, in, in, in quote marks. It's just, it's the times we live in. I mean, Don could get away with a lot. Um, Dave Chappelle, if he was doing this in the 60s, would get away with it. Lenny Bruce got away with a lot of stuff, but... Um, Mort Saul? Mort Saul. Yes, but Mort, Mort Saul was more, you know, talking about... It was more politically oriented in the fact that he was talking about headlines of the day. You know, he carried the newspaper and he'd yeah. riff on Eisenhower or Kennedy or whatever. Um <clears throat> It's a different beast, I think, than um, than humor that's rooted in sociological uh, issues, um, gay people, uh, uh, transgender people, that that sort of thing. It's it's a different it's different, I think. 
I mean, listen, I'm no, <laughs> I'm no sociological commentator and I'm no expert on comedy. I, I love comedians and I've written books on others, but, um, I, I think with Don, it was just, it, it was the time and the place for him. And if Don, if there was a Don Rickles coming up and he was 39 years old and in 2023 now, right? no way, no way. So in terms of time and place, we're going to take a short break. My guess is Michael Starr, we're talking about Don Rickles. After the break, I'm going to ask you about Milton Berle and why Don Rickles idolized Milton Berle. I'm Larry Davidson. This is a podcast, Artful Periscope. We'll be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. My Michael, my guest is Michael Starr. We're talking about Don Rickles. Before he took a short pause, I asked him about the why Rickles idolized Milton Berle, another comedic genius with a kind of interesting past. Would you agree or disagree? I would agree. And, I, and Don came of age, Don was born in 1926. Okay, so he was 22 when Milton Berle really hit it big with Texaco Star Theater. And he was, Don was, as we, you know, he, he at that point wasn't planning on being a comedian, but he, lo- he, he enjoyed comics and um, he loved Burrow. I think he loved Burrow's attitude. Um, he loved Burl's facial expressions. Right. And you can see some of that when you watch Don um, in the clips from his, from his, actually both his stand-up act, stage act, and, you know, on the Tonight Show and other talk shows, you know, the, and the way he would, he would react to people. Milton Burl was the same way. And, and when Don was, there's a story in the book how when Don was trying to make it big as a nightclub comic, he would hang out in a drugstore that was right, right next to uh, Milton Burl's office. And he would, he would wait to see his idol pass by and walk up the steps. And, and, and it was like a dream come true when Don hit it big because they became very friendly. Uh, they appeared together on many, many roasts and many, many talk shows. And um, uh, unlike Groucho Marx, I think Milton Burrow was a fan of Don's and, and they kept up a really nice cordial friendship throughout their careers. I think their styles were a little bit, were a little bit similar in that way. Um, Burrow wasn't as much of an insult, but, but, he, the way that Burl um, played off of other people and the faces he would make, and, and, and he was very quick on his feet, as was Don. Uh, so I think they had a lot in common in, in that sense. In terms of studying the history of comedy, I'm fascinated by the connection to what I call the old guard and new guard. So Milton Burl, in a sense, Don Rickles. Don Rickles to Jay Leno. And also one of my personal favorites, Robin Williams and, the, and Jonathan Winters. Oh, yeah. And throwing those names into the mix, you could see how important it was. We talk about athletes b- being or not being role models. Hopefully somebody in your life was a role model or a mentor. These younger comedians will readily admit the old guard was so important to them. And then I look to... Who's coming up now? I'm fascinated by comedy, and I'll tell you why. If you don't mind, I'll share this with the audience. I'm reading your book, and that's I, I think it's important for me as an interview to read the book, all the book, and that's I write my notes. So I'm taking a break, and I'm listening to Barbara Streisand. And very early in her career, you sing Cry Me a River. And then I realize 
What penetrates me so deeply is music and having a sense of humor. And I have a sense that's also true about you because you make a living in the world of entertainment. But seeing the timeline and the penetration in American history about how important comedy has and all those connections. Yeah, I think you're right. And I, and I, I think also you have to factor into that equation how important, um, sort of a sidelight, but how important television was. Right. I mean, you know, we had we had radio comedians, Fred Allen, right, and uh, Groucho, and 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 a lot of other people made their Bob Hope uh, that were, were huge on radio. But um, you know, once television came along, and 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 people could actually see these people and these comedians in their living rooms and the on this little screen that's talking right at them. It really made a big difference. And and Milton Berle, who we talked about, I mean, he made his bones on television, there's no doubt. Um, so, yeah, and 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 these comedians uh, you just mentioned, the the, the, the new breed, we'll, we'll dub them, maybe not so new breed anymore because they're right. older right. and Robin Williams is no longer with us. But um, they saw the doors that were opened for them by comedians like Rickles, and and Shelley Berman. Oh, I love Shelley Berman. Right, Jonathan Winters. Yeah, um, who's on my list of, of, of books to do. Um, and 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 they were so creative and and so quick on their feet, especially when you when you compare Williams and 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 Jonathan. You can see Jonathan uh, Winters and Robin Williams are like soulmates, right? Mark and Mindy. Mark and Mindy. <laughs> yeah, right. They were on the show together. But um, so I, I think a lot of the the younger quote unquote young but you know in the 90s and like it's Seinfeld and, and Jay Leno um and, and even like later on a little later Chris Rock and, and Jimmy Kimmel they realized how important um people like the old guard worm were to opening the door for a huge audience and people who could appreciate their work and also how hard these guys worked at it I mean they none of them were overnight successes right I mean I wrote a book about Red Fox. He was he was um, forty nine when he hit it big with Sanford and Son. He, years and years of comedy clubs and the Chitlin circuit. In Red's case, these guys paid their dues. They really did. And I think some of the younger comedians. I don't want to say there's. I don't want to say guilt because I think that's the wrong word. But it's they can be successful now by by you know. Even if they have a not so – they can be successful with a sit, one season of a sitcom right, puts them right, over the top. Right. Um, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's easier, but there are a lot more avenues for comedians these days, including podcasts, right, to, um, to make themselves heard. The guys who came before the, – and the women, Joan, Joan Rivers and Bell Barth and people like that, they didn't have that. Moms Mabley. Night, Moms Mabley. They right. had nightclubs, maybe radio, and then as television came along – that helped Ed Sullivan and, and Perry Como shows and, and, and the big variety shows, um, Jack Parr and Johnny Carson, of course, for Don and, and Joey Bishop had Jack Parr before Don. And so that, that helps and it gives you national exposure. I, it's so you said the magic word again, the ducks coming down again. You mentioned Johnny Carson. There is two bits that were on Jenny Car Johnny Carson that are, quintessential iconic. The first one is, and there are probably a lot more, because that was appointment TV when I was growing up. You had, oh, to, yes, stay, you had to stay up and watch Johnny Carson. Right. 
And it was a gifted interview, by the way, much like Cavett, different interviewing styles, a very, very, very smart man, troubled but very smart. So there's the one episode with Ed Ames and the Arrow. Throwing the, the hatchet. Arrow. The, the hatchet. hatchet. Okay. So you can amplify on that. The other one is lesser known because I was watching it last night on the documentary where Rickles is guest hosting because Carson is away and he breaks a cigarette case and, you know, and on Carson's desk. And Carson comes back and he finds out the cigarette case is broken. And he, and you, this is really rare. You see it in SNL where they break the fourth law, in, uh, law wall, and the camera goes all over into the back of the TV studios. That's another world. I've been behind the scenes in TV studios. And Johnny Carson leaves the set for the Tonight Show, and CPO Sharky is taping right next to them, and he walks in to confront Rickles. That was classic because nobody really got over Rickles. And surprise yeah, him. You bet your life you bet your life you can talk about to where he was surprised. Can you just take it from there what transpired? Yeah, let me let me just walk it back a little bit. Actually, it was it was it was the night before it was Bob Newhart was guest hosting. Don oh, okay. was on the show. Right. Don was on the show with Bob Newhart. And Don was doing a bit about I think it was people, immigrants coming up from Mexico and having their you have to watch, I don't remember right. have, people having their passport stamped. And he was stamping a passport and he smashed Johnny's cigarette case. And Newhart said, uh-oh, wait till Johnny gets back, you know, and they went on with the show and everything. So they had worked out, Johnny was coming back the next night. He had worked out beforehand that he would come on and say, you know, hey, what happened to my cigarette case? You know, and it looked impromptu, but it wasn't. But everybody was in on it except Don. So Carson comes back the next night. He's doing his model. He comes comes back to the desk. What happened to my cigarette case? He's like, Rickles, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get him, you know, so – you're right. He he takes he takes a he, he's walking with a microphone, gets up from the desk, walks across the hall at, at NBC and studios in Burbank where Don is taping CPO Sharky. And he walks, he, you know, they're in the middle of a scene and he bursts the door and he goes, Rickles, what'd you do to my, you know, and Don was like stunned. He had this like nobody. Ever, he was speechless. And then finally he, he got his he got his mojo back and, you know, they, they bantered back and forth. But, yeah, he really caught Don off guard. That is that is one of the classic um, Carson show moments. Ed Ames, Ed Ames in the hatchet, the CPO Sharky moment. Don had another moment with Johnny when they were with um, Geisha girls in a hot tub, and he pushed Johnny in, and it was he. he and, and then of course there were the moments with Sinatra, but right. that with that that the, the, the cigarette case was a was a classic. So classic. if Rickles was Rickles 2.0 today, he would have had a lot of opportunities for sitcoms. The, the running joke was among all his friends was how many of the Rickles pilots failed and failed and failed and failed. The executives loved him, but somehow it didn't work because everybody remembered him for his stand up and they tried to shoehorn into it. You know, the standard sitcom, he's the dad, he's this, he's that, whatever. It didn't work. So finally, CPO Sharky happened. Why did it take so long for this talented man who really wanted to be an actor in Hollywood, run silent, run deep, later on, one of the great films, Casino. So why did he fail and fail and fail? And it must have been frustrating for him. Well, yes, I think, you know, he and and, and people will read as people read in the book. He really he wanted to he wanted to be a, he wanted on a sitcom. He really wanted a sitcom. And and even though he tried again, he, he made a sitcom pilot. I think it was 1964. Neil Simon wrote, believe it or not, it was called um, 
Oh, I'm blanking on the name. With Lou Jacoby, they played two. Um, uh, they worked in a fire department in New York. They were they were brothers-in-law and neighbors. Right, I think right. the name of the time. It didn't work. They the CBS burned. It was his first CBS. They burned it off the following year. Um, uh, and then he. But I think you hit the nail on the head. TV is a business. There's there's a lot of times not much imagination. So. Okay, Don wanted a sitcom. We'll shoehorn him into the suburban dad who's working yeah. in advertising. Right. Job. Or even his first his first sitcom wasn't even really. It was for ABC. And it was called the Don Rickles Show. They envisioned some kind of weird game show hybrid kind of thing right. where Don they would game Don would make fun of people and they would get that was a bomb and Don knew it was a bomb and that did not last long. The second sitcom, and I won't bore everybody with the second sitcom was also called the Don Rickles show for uh, CBS. But again, it had Don, the pretty wife. He was a suburban dad with the young daughter played by Aaron Moran, who later went on to fame and happy days. Um, again, that, that was not Don Rickles. People expected a guy insulting people and making fun of people. And they were, even though I'm not saying Don was a bad actor, he was not. I mean, but I think the TV audience in that in, in a 22 minute sitcom, they expect did something different. And they finally did hit the nail on the head, even though it was only a modest success with CPO Sharkey, because Don was playing the chief petty officer in the Navy. And he had been in the Navy mm-hmm. two and a half years. He knew Navy guys. He knew that mindset. He knew how they spoke. And I think that sitcom, even though it lasted two, two years, was the best example of tailoring a show to Don's persona. And he did make fun of, you know, his motley crew of, of you know, officers and uh, the big moose, he called Peter Isaacson. Right. And they all loved him off, off screen, too. And there were a lot of stories in there from people who worked on that show. And But even Don realized that. I, th- I think he was, you know, he he wanted it to be renewed. And then once it was renewed and they started again, I think he was like, oh, you know, this it's not really what I want to be doing. And it's not quite, you know, what I envisioned. And so I think even he had his second guessed himself and he never had uh well he had a, one more sitcom with richard lewis called daddy dearest yeah for fox in, in its early days and i interviewed richard for that for the book really nice guy and, and very thoughtful and he he loved working with don but his take on it was you had two comedians with two distinct personalities different personalities richard was the neurotic guy don very was the, so, right don was the hyper you know making funny and it was just tough to to fit two outsized personalities in, in one 22 minute episode. And that, again, the sitcom didn't last very long. Um, and it, it didn't do that well to critics. And that's probably why. And Don never, Don never ventured into the sitcom or that. I think he, I think he realized that, that was, he had done this, he had tried and it just wasn't going to work. One of my goals for doing what I do for better or worse, is having myself take away something I didn't know, but more so my audience, they come back and say, I learned something. I didn't know that about the guests or the book or what they're talking about or writing about in terms of being storytellers. And I am a big fan of the really great interviews, Carson, Cavett. Bob Cassis was a great interview. Brian Gumbel, who's now on HBO, is terrific, smart, insightful, doesn't take any crap. And I really appreciate that. The show Late Night with Bob Costas was really, really good because if you walk away knowing something about the person behind the public perception, that works for me. How do you feel about that? 
I think you're right. And, 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 you know, there's an interesting story in the book about how Don's Don did a two part interview uh, on later with Bob Costas. Costas loved him. I interviewed him for the book, but that interview that Don did with Costas in turn, few years later led to his being cast in casino because um, Ileana Douglas, who was dating Martin Scorsese, saw that interview with Rickles, loved it, loved Rickles. And when they were looking to cast uh, the Billy Sherbert character on Casino, she remembered that. And, you know, and and Scorsese was looking for like a a Vegas guy who knew Vegas, knew the internet. And she's like, well, what about Don Rickles? You know, nobody had thought about that. He was a guy who was, he he lived and breathed Las Vegas for so many years, and he knew how the casinos worked and and and, and all that kind of all that kind of image. So she mentioned she recommended Don to um, to Martin Scorsese based on the Costas interview, and Don got the job, and that led led to the movie. So I do agree. Bob Costas was and is a terrific interviewer, and <clears throat> I think if 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 people like Costas and you mentioned Brian Gumble. Um, Dick Cabot, you know, are given the forum and given the room to 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 let their question. Charlie Rose, unfortunately, what happened it didn't end well, but he was a good interviewer too. But to let to give these interviewers their space, and it's which is tough on television. You're you're on a time limit, right? You know, Costas was on later at night where he didn't have to cut to commercial every eight minutes, so he it gave him the latitude. To ask and, and and more power to him because he did his research to ask more penetrating questions. Um, you don't always get that. I think what uh, you're it, getting at is let it breathe. There was a show yeah. was on briefly because I know Alan Zweibel. I interviewed him, and he was involved in putting this program together. Um, David Steinberg was also a fascinating. Oh yeah, comedian had a program where he would sit down and so- short segments uninterrupted and interviewing other comedians. And you sit there and you listen to them and you learn and you learn about the process and where they're coming from. David Steinberg was very low-key, knowing ego, just would pose a question, very simple question, and let them talk about what they do. Great television. Not many people know about that. It may have lasted a few seasons. Before we take another short break, I was moving through this conversation with you. Once again, Michael, thank you so much. Rickles lived to a ripe old age. People say that, but when the time comes, it's still very sad and tragic. Yeah, yeah, no. it, it is. I don't care what they say. My mom was in her 90s and was, was much smarter than anybody else in her family. She was close to being – which she was gifted in terms of her intelligence yeah. and what she could absorb. And no coursework post in the New York Times got over on her. She did it in pen, not in pencil. <laughs> what does that say? Right. As he got older and his contemporaries were dying off, how did he – process that based on what you know about him there's a lot of sadness there there is and 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 he and he talks a little bit a little bit about that in interviews that i that i found in the book about his contemporaries you know and there was a story i think it was in the new york times the headline was you know don rickles the last clown of his class you know that that kind of thing and right right listen it had to affect him i mean it's like you mentioned your mother and friends die off and and, and it hits you and, and he, he had already lost his son which he never got over. Who would? What parent would? Correct. Um, he had a daughter, Mindy, who who he had a great relationship with, so that helped. But um, it's 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 hard to process. And I think the way that Don coped with that sort of thing was he didn't, without getting too down about it, was he just he kept on working. 
work, 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 kind of like yeah. Regis Fulman. Right. I, was, I knew Regis pretty well um, through my work at the Post, and we had lunch several times, and I had a nice relationship with him. But I think he was the same way. You're just like constantly working, and, and that keeps you busy. And when Regis was unceremoniously dumped by ABC, you know, I, I, I think – he, he he was like bereft and you know, he still appeared on TV, but it wasn't the same. And he needed to be in the spot. He needed to keep that going. And I think Don was the same way. I mean, when Don did that, you mentioned this earlier in your introduction, he did the dinner with Don series for AARP. Um, it's not easy to watch. I'll be honest. No. It was his last project. He passed away while he was doing that. And people say, you know, why would Don do that? And, and, and one of the producers, I think I, I did, I did interview the producer of the show for that. And he said, just Don needed to work, even in that stage of his life where he had, he couldn't walk anymore because of he had necrotizing fasciitis. He had undergone several operations right, on his life. Right. He was depressed. There's no doubt. You know, he had to be. And But he just needed to work. And as soon as, you know, he there's one story he tells him when he first met Don, you know, he, he shuffled there. I think he came in on a wheelchair and he had a baseball cap on. He said it was nearly unrecognizable. But once, you know, John joked about it, you know, you're going to pay me for this. But one, once the lights went on, he summoned up the, the strength to, 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 you know, be in the moment and give as of much of himself as he could right. at that point in time, which wasn't, if you watch him, it really wasn't a lot. And it's not, like I said, it's not easy to watch. Um, ironically, though, the last interview he did was with Scorsese and De Niro about Casino. And he passed away shortly after that. But he he just he was just one of those entertainers. I think like Milton Berle, too, who just needed to be on, right. needed to work. I, I understand that. There are three people in the book that I have spent time with, if you don't mind me mentioning. Not that no. I'm in sport, important or special, but I did interview them in various formats. Um, one was Kathy Lee Gifford. I did her on stage at a big theater on Long Island, the Madison Theater. And she's a, she was really – and she was drinking the wine, by the way, on stage. <laughs> Bill Persky, most a lot of people don't know, but has a strong history in television. And the one person that was so nice to me after doing the interview, and he is a major figure in television and comedy, was Carl Reiner. After, oh, the, yes. after the interview was over, he called me into the control room. I don't always want to say what he told me, but I've never had somebody say that to me. Such a big figure who has been around everybody in the business and what he said to me i have never forgotten it and i thank him for that and he was a giant and uh, he's when you look at the stuff he did with mel brooks it is classic so i want to thank you for that because that's my very in a very small way my connection to some of the figures in the book that you write about so thank you oh you're welcome i mean i agree with you about carl reiner i interviewed him several times for the new york post um towards the end of his life, you know, maybe five, six, seven years ago. And then about the Mary Tyler Moore show and right, colorizing right. episodes and about his world, his documentary about being Jewish in World War II. He was the nicest man in yes. the world and he made you feel like you knew him forever. And you'd, I'd call his house, you know, they say, here, call Ryan. He'd pick up the phone himself. It was just like, it was one of those things where you just, I agree with you, Larry. It's like, you just, you keep these memories with you forever. They, they, they never go away. 
I won't believe it's the same thing about Regis, by the way. I won't believe this story, but I had that same experience with Edie Falco when they were just starting to make The Sopranos. I say, I'll save that for another podcast because I love <laughs> Edie Falco. She's a nice woman, yes. Yeah, and very, very talented, by the way. Nurse Jackie was great television, really was. We're going to take another short break. After the break, we're going to kind of switch gears, stay in the ballpark a little bit, maybe go from right field or center field, where we're going with this, and talk about television in the year 2022 because my guess knows the world of television. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Arco Periscope. We'll be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. Hi, I'm Larry Davidson, for better or worse. This is the podcast, Awful Periscope. My guest is the author of Don Rickles, Michael Seth Starr. The book is subtitled The Merchant of Venom. So off air, we had a conversation, and I totally agree, that I started getting all the apps and the streaming services, and I love what's on. There's too much stuff there. But broadcast TV is being diminished as we speak. You wrote right about one of the shows I think is really very, very good, and that's the show called Alaska Daily. What did you write about that? Because Hillary, is it Hillary Swank? Swank, pronounce it correctly, is a terrific actress, and it takes you inside the newspaper business, which I yeah, think is really no. important. And I, and that kind of it's dramatic, but I think it takes behind the scenes, which we need to, because newspaper business is being. Uh, attacked all over the place and papers at local papers and regional papers are going out of business and even the big boys new york times your paper and the day uh, and all those other washington post um you gotta sometimes be treading very carefully in terms of getting um negative reaction from your readers and your and people that advertise in your papers yeah um you know uh, tv shows about newspapers generally historically have never really worked um, Lou Grant was probably the big exception. Right. Um, he won several Emmys for that. Dick Wolf even tried with a, a series based on the post. I think it was called the paper in like the mid to late nineties. It didn't last because it, it's, it's hard to, I don't think people buy into all that, you know, the presses and, you know, and all the guys smoking, you know, it's not like right. that, right. at least not in my era, not anymore. But, um, you know, actually Larry, you know, I, I reviewed Alaska daily and I wasn't, honestly wasn't crazy about it. I thought Hillary Swank was fine, but I felt that the early on, at least it didn't, it didn't know what it wanted to be. And and it was a little, I thought uh, far flung as far as, you know, I'm going to get to the bottom of this and I'm going to expose it. But you know, that's really does it really how it works. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Dedicated reporters who want to get to the bottom of the story and they do dedicate themselves to it. It may not be, in in such the fashion that it's shown on television with you know dramatic meetings and and you know and that kind of thing. Now I haven't watched Alaska Daily Daily since its early incarnations when it when it launched, but it has been doing very well in the ratings. And I I don't want to speak out of school. I I think they ordered a full season for it and might have renewed it, but I'm not sure. Again, that that gets back to the fact that there's so much there's so much to keep track of. You know, I tried to read the the, 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 the trades every day, you know, what's canceled, what's coming up, who's been fired from a show, you know, what's doing well in the ratings. It's really, it's, it's, you know, you try to keep up. You can't always, um, I guess in a way it's a little easier now because you mentioned the, the, 
broadcast television right. going down into the abyss. And I, and I would agree with that. When I started at the post uh, on 28, almost 28 years, I'm in my 28th year. You don't look at, you don't look 28 years at the newspaper (laughs) business. I was two when I started. There you go. Um, When it, when a show premiered, like let's say ABC, CBS, NBC, let's forget Fox because it was still in its infancy then. And the shows never did as well. They didn't have the coverage. They do now. But when ABC, NBC, CBS, if a show premiered with, let's say 2.8 million viewers, it was gone. There's no, you know, it was, there was no way it was going to last because it was expected to get 12, 15, 18 million, right. 2 million. It was a goner. There's no way. Now, with a show like Alaska Daily, if, if, a, if, a, series, if a new series comes on and it gets 2.1, it's like, wow, it's doing great. If it's 4 million, it's, it's, it's an out-of-the-box hit in the network's mind. Um, but, you, but now you have the added element of measuring viewership on a delayed basis, which they didn't do back then because you didn't, they didn't, there was no streaming. Right. So, you know, if Alaska daily premieres to, you know, I don't know, 1.8 million viewers that now on abc.com or if it's on Hulu, they can say, well, maybe, but people watched it on Hulu or online. It got an additional 5 million viewers, you know, over the week. So they use those numbers to kind of, you know, to kind of make the case for the show being watched. And I think there is some validity in that. Not many people do watch television anymore, broadcast television live. Um, I know I don't. I, you know, I tape, uh, I DVR everything, my favorite shows, New Amsterdam, you know, Young Sheldon, that kind of thing. And I, and I watch them later in the week when I can. So, and I think that's what that, that gives. That is helping broadcast television, at least for now. Stay alive. I do the same thing. One of my favorite shows to DVR is Yellowstone. And mm-hmm. now on the stream on Hulu, you can get uh, Yellowstone 1883 and 1923. Correct me if I'm wrong. I read somewhere that HBO had Yellowstone and turned it down. I thought, yes. I thought in terms of what's coming up with Showtime and HBO and Stars is trying to a certain degree. And I like what Netflix is doing. That that would have been a monster for them, Yellowstone. Kevin Costner alone, the setting, the way it's shot, what it speaks of. Some people are saying it's red meat for the MAGA nation. I, I don't agree with that. This is American history unfolding, and the fact that they're, Sheridan is smart enough to do 1883 and 1923, and if that was part of HBO, this would have been so many people signing up for HBO and HBO Max. It's a no-brainer. So you understand the business much better than I do. Why does HBO turn something like that down? Well, you know, you, you, you're never behind closed doors to know. And there was a big mistake. It was like the guy who said, you know, the, with the Beatles, nobody, nobody wants, a, you know, a, a, a pop group. Right. You know, that famous right. guy in England. And then, you know, of course, the Beatles. You, you don't know. I mean, Kevin Costner had never done a TV series before. Um, his movies before uh, the movies he made before Yellowstone were not doing that well at the box office. Perhaps that figured into HBO's thinking. I don't know. Perhaps it it was too expensive and they didn't want to spend the money. You know, there were a lot of things that go into this and people don't think about there's the casting of course expenses and what kinds of uh, deals networks can make for 
for maybe to maybe for it to stream elsewhere or to pay the actors for another another season. What kind of deals the actors want? Regardless, you're right though. Yes, it's been a huge hit, and actually, that's one of the shows on. You know, I mentioned before, people don't watch what they call linear TV now, like watch it the same night it airs. That's one of the few shows nowadays that is watched on a linear basis. Yes, Yellowstone on Paramount, and does it does extremely well. 11, 12 million viewers, which in this day and age is more than double what anything its closest competitor. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, and. When when a show like that and Taylor Sheridan has other shows, you know, and then, now we have um, with Sylvester. I, I interviewed Sylvester Stallone. For, Tulsa, um, Tulsa King. Tulsa King on Paramount Plus, which, you know, the Paramount Plus is, says it does well. We'll never really know because they don't release ratings, but they do release, for instance, the first weekend of Tulsa King. They, I think they put out a press release saying that they had the most ever uh, sign up, subscription signups based on people seeing Sylvester Stallone in a TV series and it's the series is good. I've seen it. Um, so that, you know, that helps. Um, but again, it's, 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 it's a subscription. It's, it's not broadcast television. It's, it's digital and right. it's a different beast nowadays. And you have big stars, um, uh, Jessica Chastain doing, um, uh, uh, Tammy and uh, George and Tammy. And I watched that and that's, that's you, you reviewed that. And let me just go right to that one, and then we're, then we're going to do a lightning round because I have your article, Best and Worst of 2022. Um, that is a very, very dark show. It's shot dark. The characters are really troubled uh, what happened. And it's all – I mean it's, I'm sure it's a lot of drama there, but uh, Tammy Wynette, very, very sad, very sad. Yes. Her second husband, on how much of that is true in his drama, um, they were gifted performers, but the, they're – coming together, coming apart, coming together. I watched it. I was drawn into it because it's the world of music, which uh, fascinates me. But it, it's a hard show to watch. Well, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, they, 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 the people who made this, including uh, George Jones's daughter, Georgette, they did not shy away from that. No. They did not shy away from the alcoholism and the pill popping, uh, you know, with, 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 with Tammy Wynette. And George Jones and then the and the domestic violence, you know, that was going on with with the two of them. And but it was you're right, though, but it was a fascinating story because even. To the depths of darkness that the both of those performers went to, they loved each other very much. And even after they were divorced, were performing together, yes. almost like they never it's almost like that marriage never happened. And they were still, you know, but they, but there was a magic there, and I think that the fact that the um, filmmakers didn't shy away from that, and Abe Silvio, who wrote the screenplay, um, it would have been a different beast had they just glossed over it, and people would have probably would have been complaining about that. You know, George, you know, slapped her around. Why didn't they? But they did show all that, and it makes for a compelling human drama. And you're right, it was dark, yes. and it was shot darkly. Uh, the cinematography, but um, I interviewed Jessica Chastain for that too, and she was. She was so enamored with with Tammy. I almost said Tammy Faye with Tammy Wynette, and and how much she went through, and how she didn't ever really pity herself, and never saw herself as a victim. That's right. the important thing, right? Um, and she could give as good as she could take, and she did a lot of this um, on her own without George Jones, and was su more successful than George Jones. Let's face it. After afterwards, so I think she was drawn to that in that sense, and people. I think saw that if they if they watched uh, the series. All right, so lightning round because uh, we can only go so long. 
I could go on forever with you, by the way. Because of new to streaming, I've binged um, Breaking Bad, and I'm at the back end of a Better Call Saul, but it's not been released to Hulu the last episodes. Man, people – Breaking Bad, you know, I didn't, didn't appeal – you know, when I watched it, cast, thread, the arc, the same thing with Better Call Saul. Um, just your reaction quickly because I, you don't have to sell it, but it's really great television. Both of those shows, I, I, honestly, I and I watched both, and I actually interviewed Brian Cranston a few days ago for uh, for Your Honor for Showtime. It's starting. It's starting what soon? It's it's starting this uh, week. Sunday. 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 Yeah. And he yeah. mentioned he mentioned Breaking. I interviewed. Right. He mentioned Breaking Bad. Um, my, my I, I I really enjoyed Better Call Saul. Um, I think it had a little. It had it had some some seasons were better than others, and I felt that the the ending of the show was fantastic, and he whatever negative thoughts I might've had for other stuff about the show. I think in my eyes, they redeem themselves with the final season. It's really good. Okay. As, as is the finale overall. And maybe because it was so new at the time and had never been, I, I, my take on it is I liked breaking bad better. Um, and I was honestly, when it, when they announced that Bob Odenkirk was going to do better call Saul, I think I even wrote a column about this saying like, why, Like just leave the show alone, breaking bad. But I was happy to see that when once Better Call Saul started, they really did because it was a prequel series before Breaking Bad. They really did take the story in so many different directions, and the mad the beauty of Better Call Saul is and, and more towards the last few seasons is they started to catch up to the Breaking Bad universe. So they yes. brought they brought in some of those characters, Gene Carlo, Hank, yeah, yeah, Gus Fring. Um, yeah. And Schrader, right. you know, uh, right. who's my who's my favorite on Breaking Bad. He came in. Gomi, his partner, came in, um, and, and and Jesse Pinkman. Of course, I'm probably spoiling it for people who haven't watched Better Call Saul. But um, and and the Kingpin himself, the Heisenberg, uh, Brian Cranston. So yeah. they they did. I, but I thought I maybe I, I think it's because Breaking Bad for its time was started in 2008. It was just so new that whole narrative arc. And I'm including the Sopranos in there, which I love too. Um, that was a trailblazer. But and you talk about you talk about dark shows, right? Breaking Bad was one of the darkest shows I've ever seen. But they did a terrific job, I thought, with the finale. Um, tied up a lot of loose ends, kept some loose ends out there, um, and they ended up making a follow-up movie. Which eh, I didn't better. like the movie. Eh, me neither. I, I didn't like. I, the, I, I didn't like the movie. It, it was the Saints of Newark. That's what it was, I think. Yeah, oh well, well, that was from the that was for the Sopranos, right? right Saints right. of Newark. But they they did make a follow movie with Breaking Bad with um, oh the Baron Breaking Bad, yeah, yeah. Can I Hammers? I forget what it was called. It wasn't that great? And there was really no reason for it, I right. thought. But there is a reason for Better Call Saul, and and um, as did Brian as Brian Cranston did in Breaking Bad. So does Odin. So did, does did Odenkirk have in? Better Call Saul, you know, uh, uh, Ray Seahorn w- was terrific. And you mentioned, and we mentioned they brought back Giancarlo Esposito as Gus right. Spring, brilliant actor. Um, Michael McKean in the early seasons of, of um, Better oh, yeah. Call Saul was right. terrific. Uh, so many, so many interesting, well thought out characters. Ed Begley Jr. Uh, was in that well, series. It, it's the cast. It's the writing yeah. and the cast. You it know always that, is. You, right? know, yeah. you know that better than I do. 
Yeah. I'm going to throw out this real quickly because this episode, this is the first one we're recording in 2023. It'll come up down the road. Um, if you're listening to this podcast and you can, you can binge it, Blackbird is amazing television. So my, from my, in my opinion, so we always end this segment, what did I miss? What did I get wrong? Michael Starr. So before we let you go, what did I miss? Maybe what, well, probably missed a lot because there's a lot more in the book. And it, what did I get wrong if I did get anything wrong? No, I, I, I wouldn't say you got anything wrong, and I don't think you missed anything. Like we said, there was so much television on, and you can't talk about everything. Um, we did, be, before we got on, we are talking about Manifest, which, honestly, I, I did not watch on NBC. Right. It, was, it was on for three seasons on NBC, and it came back to Netflix, um, I think, in October. So before watching it on Netflix, I caught up for the three seasons on NBC, loved it, Binged it in like a month or something. And now my wife and I are watch, have watched see, the first half of season four on Netflix, which is very good. And it's it's returning for the second half of its fourth and final right. season, probably in the spring. Maybe there's no date, maybe late spring. But I would recommend people to watch that. I'm not a big, just personally, not a big sci-fi fan, but this mixes sci-fi with other elements of drama. Yeah. And it's a, it's it's sort of intellectual in its own way, um, at times a little hard to follow the plot. So I find myself just giving up and just enjoying it and going, okay, whatever, now they're here and now they're doing this. That's that's the world of Manifest. So, okay, you know, whatever happens, happens. But I'm really enjoying it and, and the acting is very good. Um, one show that actually, that honestly, I did not watch because I was not a Game of Thrones fan was House of Dragon, uh, the House yeah. House of the Dragon, which was enormously successful yeah. last summer and was all anything was talking about yeah. um, and did very well for HBO. Um, better for HBO, I think, than The Lord of the Rings did for Amazon. I liked it better. You liked The Lord of the I think I liked I think it better. People, and I know talking to people uh, at work who, who did watch both, People liked Lord of the Rings, but they liked House of the Dragon better. I don't know, maybe because there was already a blueprint from yeah. Game of Thrones. Right. Um, but I did find it interesting that Amazon, uh, or a Prime Video as they call it now, never really did publish once. Once Lord, they did a, they hyped it to the gills once it before it launched. Right. Once it launched and it got some, there were some reviews. There were some negative reviews here and there. They never really talked about it very much. I, interesting to me. I mean, maybe because they felt people, the viewership wasn't as big. And they were, and let's face it, they were up against Game of Thrones, which is sort of the same genre. And Game of Thrones was pretty, you know, setting viewership records for HBO and they were more than happy to, to put out press releases and, and publicize the numbers. Um, and people, I think, generally did like Game of Thrones and they liked the direction the show took. Again, as a prequel series, as was... Um, Better Call Saul to Breaking Bad, such was House of the Dragon to Game of Thrones. Um, you mentioned Blackbird. Great. Paul Walter Hauser, I interviewed him for that. He was terrific as serial killer Larry Hall. Right. Better than Taron Egerton, I, I felt. And okay. he was, and he won a gold, and he was nominated and won a Golden Globe. I know. Uh, know. Taron Egerton, I'd have to double check. I don't know if he was nominated, but he didn't, anyway, he didn't win. Right. But, but Walt, Paul Walter Hauser won. And, you know, there's something about, in this really weird way, I've interviewed several actors who played serial killers, and, and, and the roles are just, 
you, you don't you don't want to be fascinated by them because they're horrible people and they do unspeakably horrible things. Look at Dahmer, right? But you but you feel yourself impelled to watch them because they, and uh, and Walpole Walter Hazard was was that good. So and, let, let me pose a last question. And I want to thank my technical director because he's listening and he's a big fan. He listened to your book. Can, can I just mention one more show? Sure. One more show, The Patient on FX right. with Steve Carell and Donald Gleason. Terrific. So check that out if you haven't watched so, it. Here's my question. I watch Masterpiece on PBS, Magpie Murders, Annika. I can go up and down the line. You know why it works for me? Not because it's necessarily all British actors, Vienna Blood. Is because I don't know who the actors are. I'm not getting caught up in Robert De Niro and Pacino, who can mm-hmm. chew up scenes. And for me, and I, you kind of touch upon that, even Blackbird, sometimes it's better off n- not coming in, knowing the actors, knowing their roles, and you get caught up in who they are portraying rather than who they are in terms of their acting career over a long period of time and their personas. I know that's true for you, but it pulls me in right away. If I don't know who you are, it's more believable for me as just as an, an, in the, as an audience watcher. No, you're absolutely right. The first thing I always do, like, for instance, when I was watching Blackbird, I was like, who, who the hell is Paul? You know, I got to look this guy up. And then you say, oh, he was on the, you know, a sitcom for two episodes, right. you know, 1999, or he was on this series. Or he played this character, but, he, you know, he's only in two episodes. And and you, you know, it just, it, it just goes back to, you know, there were, especially in show business, there were more people you've never heard of than you've heard of because they're just, what they call in England, they're jobbing actors. They're just, they're hardworking they're, they're, some of them are very talented, they, and, and that's why they're able to move from show to show, series to series. And then, if they're lucky enough, they they, they get into a series that really, really showcases the strength, their strengths. And I think that did that. I think Blackbird did that for Paul Walter Hauser. And I think if you watch, I mentioned the patient. Uh, Steve Carell is great in that, as is Donald Gleason. His um, mm-hmm. Donald Gleason, I think, is pronounced. Who's an Irish actor? His father, Brendan Gleason. Was in uh, Banshees of uh, in the Sharon, which won several gold yes, they did. Yeah, so he has a good lineage. But you're right, and and what what I find when you mention British television, I watch a lot of British TV too, is that you don't know these. I mean, you might not know who they are, but then the more British shows you watch, you see, oh, that didn't I just see him in you know fill in the blank on Acorn? Now he's in this other British show, and. Yeah. He, because there's a very, I think there's a much smaller fraternity of actors and actresses in the UK than there are in the US. Well, last word, Michael Seth Stars, the author of the book, Don Rickles, The Merchant of Venom. I hope we didn't have to make you work too hard. I could listen to no, you all day. <laughs> I read your columns in the post, by the way. So I look forward to more columns coming down the road in 2023. Michael, so much for spending some time with us. Oh, thank you. I, this was a really nice conversation. So thanks for having me on. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. Till next time, bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineer, Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa 
and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Tired to her kitchen chair.